Tere, and welcome to History of Estonia podcast. The Radical Right in Interwar Estonia. Discussions with Professor Andres Kasekamp. Well, I'm very pleased to announce our first guest to History of Estonia podcast. I couldn't have asked for an Estonian historian that is more renowned both in Estonia and abroad. Our first guest is Professor Andres Kasekamp of Toronto University, Monk School of Global Affairs. He has published two books. His first published in 2000 by Paul Grabe is the book we will talk about today, The Radical Right and Interwar Estonia. His second book, A History of the Baltic States, was published by Paul Grabe in 2010. Andres Kasekamp was also a professor of Baltic politics at the University of Tartu in Estonia and director of the Estonian Foreign Policy Institute. He is also a past president of the Association for the Advancement of Baltic Studies and a person that is always the smartest man in the room. Tere, and welcome to History of Estonia podcast, Professor Kasekamp. Thank you for that very kind introduction. We start our conversation in the year 1919. In early February, the last Russian troops were cleared from Estonian territory. And then on June 23rd, the German Landesfair troops were defeated near Sessis, Latvia, by a combination of Estonian and Latvian troops. Estonians, for the first time in roughly 700 years, are masters of their own territory militarily. And because of that, they were able to become independent. And then on February 2nd, 1920, the Treaty of Tartu was signed with the Soviet Union. The average government lasted nine and a half months. In our previous episode, I read a quote from General Leidener, bemoaning Estonia's poor constitution and his complaint that nothing could ever get completed before the government collapsed. Was there a structural problem with the Rigikogu in the era of independence? Well, uh, the Rigi, of course, is the parliament. Uh, I think Leitner's concern was with the constitution at large and the, the fact that the legislature had an inordinate amount of power and that the executive was weak, which leads us further on to the question of the amendment of the constitution and the introduction of a strong presidency, which we'll be talking about later. Uh, but the constitution was designed uh, expressly to avoid having a strong executive, because remember, they were reacting against the experience of autocratic czarist rule. So Estonian citizens, the same applies for Latvia and Lithuania, were suspicious of any sort of strong individual. And thus, uh, Estonia didn't even have a presidency whatsoever in their first constitution in 1920. And Latvia and Lithuania had a very weak presidency, which was elected by uh, the parliament, uh, similarly to, to, to the present. Um, and not only was it, there was no president in Estonia, but it was also a, a unicameral parliament. There was no upper house, there was no senate uh, to check the will of the people. So it was as close to sort of a direct democracy as possible. It also had these features uh, which they'd copied from the Swiss of uh, uh, the possibility for pop popular initiative to uh, have national referenda 
on any question that a certain number of citizens who signed, gave their signatures could uh, apply for, and the parliament would have to respect the results of, of this referendum. Um, so, yeah, General Leidener and Konstantin uh, Betz, who we'll be talking about a lot later, the first prime minister, later president, um, they were not very satisfied with this system uh, because indeed there was a rather rapid turnover of unstable coalition uh, governments. Uh, but that was similar in many other places across Europe at the time, even in established democracies such as the Third Republic in France at the same, at the same period. Um, and things did get done. I mean, most importantly, of course, the legislation in the beginning of the, uh, the interwar period, uh, right from the, actually even before parliament, it was the Constitutional Assembly, which passed the Land Reform Act, which was the most far-reaching transformative piece of legislation that was passed whatsoever. 1925, the Cultural Autonomy Law, also something that was uh, very significant uh, on a global scale, uh, very innovative, something that no other country had at the time. So um, there was a lot of criticism, but I think uh, it was rather exaggerated. Okay, thank you. In 1924, December 1st, there was an attempted communist coup d'etat was suppressed in Tallinn. Can we talk about the overall political mood in the Baltic region or even in Europe in general in the 1930s? When we take a step back, is what happened in Estonia really all that different from Finland, Latvia, Lithuania, and Poland? Is all of these other countries had right-wing or fascist elements? Well, often these uh, fascist groups which emerged um, claimed to be first and foremost anti-communist movements. Uh, and you mentioned this 1st of December, 1924 uh, insurrection in Tallinn, which was put down by the, by the authorities. So communism or general sort of leftist revolutionary ideas were still quite popular in Estonia at the beginning of the 1920s. But after this uh, insurrection, which was sponsored by the Soviet Union, um, people saw what a deadly threat uh, communism really is to uh, independence and sort of left-wing uh, support for left-wing political parties uh, declined um, ever after. And into the 1930s, the uh, right-wing parties gained more popularity. I'm not talking about the fascists here, but sort of the mainstream conservatives as represented by the farmers' parties. Um, this also has to do with the fact that uh, uh, the most radical reforms were already passed at the very beginning of independence. The land reform, which I already mentioned in particular, um, which meant that many of those with the most radical revolutionary demands found themselves sort of, uh, that, that the left-wing parties which had pushed this through in the Constituent Assembly in the early years of the, the Republic, uh, they basically put themselves out of business. Uh, these progressive reforms uh, undermine their own uh, agenda, or not their agenda, but the fact that they <laughs> their electoral support, because mm -hmm. farmers who were landless previously now became uh, property owners and had uh, you know, became more conservative in their outlook when they had property to defend. Uh, but going to the question of now fascism in the 1930s, 
then of course, when we get to the core of what we'll be talking about today, the, the VUPS movement or the Veterans League, then uh, obviously it was part of a wider European trend. And in the Estonian case, well, it's most obvious, of course, looking at the outside to make comparisons with Nazism in, in Germany, but the more direct influence in the Estonian case was what was happening uh, in the North, in, in Finland, as is often the case uh, at present. The Estonians are always looking towards Finland um, and often get inspired by um, developments in Finland. And that was the case in the 1920s and 30s as well. And not surprisingly, because the Finnish radical right, the Lapua movement, which uh, arose in 1929 and peaked by 1932, had a huge influence on the Finnish domestic political agenda. And many of these Finnish radical right uh, individuals had been volunteers, had fought on the white side in the Finnish civil war and had been volunteers subsequently in the Estonian war of independence. So were uh, directly brothers in arms with uh, the Estonian right, uh, people who would, be, uh, would become the leaders of the veterans movement. Thank you. Let's describe the League of Veterans. Their symbol was a cudgel. They wore a black armband and, and a beret. They called to put a Peremes Maya. It seemed like they very much wanted an authoritarian state. Or was it just what they imagined a strong state would look like? Was this a bit tongue in cheek? Or did the majority of veterans really want a dictatorship? Well, um, in those days, of course, uh, the, the fascist-like movements, but also movements on the extreme left, tended to think that liberal democracy, parliamentary democracy, was uh, headed for the dustbin of history. And this sort of collectivist, be it of the right or the left, that was the model of, of the future, that parliamentarianism had sort of, uh, discredited itself. This is particularly after the worldwide economic depression that begins in 1929 on Wall Street and really hits Estonia hard by about 1931, sort of corresponds with the rise of, of the veterans. And that's when people start looking for not just veterans, but amongst the population at large, looking at the parliamentary political parties and seeing that they're unable to effectively meet the challenge of this new financial crisis and get the idea that, well, if uh, only we fix the constitution by introducing a strong presidency, perhaps then uh, we'll be able to get a hold over uh, the uh, economic crisis. Uh, so that was, I think, a widespread idea that, uh, as we talked about earlier, there was this turnover, uh, weak coalition of governments. And then when the depression strikes, uh, in the early 1930s, there's this desire that who will get us out of this mess, uh, that the political parties seem to be unable to do so, uh, that maybe if we can elect one strong man, uh, democratically still, uh, that this would be the solution politically to our economic problems. Okay, let's take a jump forward from the 20s to 1932. On July 17th, Northern Estonia Day's top of veterans rally, 50 men from the Socialist Gymnastics Club, many of them heavyweight wrestlers, went to try and break up an event. And during Sirk's speech, a fight broke out. 
The following day, the Farmers Party, Kaya, predicted a civil war. Do you know if this was, was a serious concern in the minds of Estonians, the socialist versus veterans rivalry? Was there a serious concern about potential civil war? Uh, not at this point yet in 1932. That was all uh, hyperbolic. But by 1934, um, then that when the veterans have become very popular and seem to be on the uh, verge of power, then that becomes a genuine concern. And this is really the only instance of, you think of fascism in the 1920s and 30s in Italy and, and Nazi Germany, you think of, of street brawls between the socialists and the black shirts in Italy and the brown shirts in, in Germany. And this instance that you mentioned in Dabba was perhaps the most extreme in the Estonian case where there were the, the fist fights. Um, but in general, um, this sort of political agitation, which was more intense than at any other period in Estonian history, uh, the history of this republic, um, was actually fairly tame compared to continental Europe. And in fact, uh, quite characteristically for Estonians, uh, very often these uh, socialists and veterans, when they'd be trying to disrupt each other's campaign meetings, instead of using physical violence, would first start by trying to drown out the other side with singing. Uh, so the uh, veterans would come in and sing sort of patriotic marching songs from the War of Independence to drown out the socialist uh, anthem, the international. And I've already posted those to the Facebook page, so check them out, please. On August 13th to the 15th, Needing over 50% of the vote, the first constitutional referendum fails, but just barely, garnering 49.2% of the vote. In 1933, on June 1st and 2nd, the veterans shout down and humiliate the Rigi Vanam, Tunison, at a speech in Tartu. Tunison declares a state of emergency and shuts down the veterans group in Tartu. Then, on June 10th to the 12th, the second referendum, the Tunison referendum, fails. Pat's Farmers Party withholds support because of Tunison's role of toppling Pat's government in an earlier crisis, and they only get 32.7% of the vote. Then we get to July, the Great Depression is ongoing, and the government decides to devalue the crone. In two War of Independence ships, Estonia's only warships were sold to Peru to raise cash. Voitless, the veterans' newspaper, goes nuts, decrying how Tunison had left the country undefended. On August 11th, things are going poorly for the Tunison government, and he unexpectedly declares a state of emergency and bans the veterans. He calls it, quote, the movement aimed against the democratic order and the spread of the irresponsible agitation, which is creating anxiety among the broad strata of citizens and is dangerous to the democratic order and public safety. There is a lot of blowback against the, the government crackdown and veterans often drive out to break up socialist meetings in small towns. I guess we can, call, we can describe this as a tense time. Uh, absolutely. Uh, and, and the veterans actually um, unexpectedly benefited from uh, this uh, 
state of emergency that uh, Denis and unexpectedly uh, proclaimed. Uh, most of the, the national media, even if they didn't support the veterans, saw this as an attack on, on free speech um, and thought that Denison had really had really jumped the gun. Um, the fact that Betts will declare a state of emergency the following year, um, many people expect that it would be kind of similar and toothless in the same way that uh, Denison's was. Uh, but Betts, of course, learns from this uh, fiasco um, because uh, Denison uh, well, has to end up, well, he gets toppled from government in October after the third referendum and the state of emergency is, is, is lifted. Okay. Uh, we go to October 16th. The third referendum finally passes, getting 72.7% of the vote. Tennyson's government resigns and lifts the state of emergency. The Rigikogo uh, chairman, Einbund, offers Pats the opportunity to form a government, and Pats speedily forms a coalition of expert, experts to form a transitional government. Then on October 28th, the veterans were refounded, and by December, over 400 chapters were registered. On November 26th, the pro-Nazi chairman of the Baltic German Party expressed his entire sympathy for the renewal movement which was the veterans. The veterans were also found to have purchased a costly printing press from the Nazis at a heavily discounted price. Is this public mood souring for the veterans at this point? Um, no, I would say that uh, public support for the veterans is only growing and they have momentum on their side at the end of 1933. Um, this, uh, slurs about the veterans being connected with the German Nazis was a sign of desperation on the part of their opponents uh, to try to find something uh, to uh, lessen their, their popularity. And of course, at that time, uh, for most Estonians, the, the Germans were still the historic enemy of the Estonian nation. So that kind of accusation would have an impact. Uh, but in fact, after the um, successful referendum in October 1933, which had been initiated um, by the veterans, uh, they had all the momentum going for them. Oh, interesting. Uh, thanks. Uh, on December 17th, at the Veterans Congress in the Estonia Concert Hall, Larka was declared as their candidate for president. Did Leidener feel crossed because Sirk had been wooing General Leidener as a potential presidential candidate? Yes, that's a, that's a very intriguing question. Um, it comes from a few memoirs at the time. Uh, Ilmar Ramat and also Helmar Ma have written about this, that uh, Arthur Sirk, the, uh, the de, de facto leader of uh, the veterans movement, had been in talks with General Leidener that he would become the, their presidential candidate. But instead, the Congress uh, quite expectedly uh, proposed the General Larka, who had been the chairman of the veterans all along, and their most senior figure would be their natural uh, presidential candidate. Um, and indeed, there is there was speculation in some memoirs, as I said, Ilmar Ramat and Helmar Ma, that at Leidener, uh, 
join forces with Betts later to suppress the veterans because he had indeed felt uh, snubbed. And I think if Leidener had been the candidate of the veterans, things would have gone better for the veterans. They could have won the presidential elections. There might not have been uh, a coup uh, whatsoever. Democracy could have possibly survived with the veterans um, and Leidener in, in power. Um, so it is sort of very interesting to speculate on, on that. Thank you. So we get into 1934, and on January 24th, the Constitution goes into force. Elections needed to happen within 100 days, and they were then scheduled for April 22nd and 23rd and 29th and 30th. Then on February 18th, Pats made a speech to the Farmers Congress stating that, quote, he won't shirk his responsibility when it comes to protecting the state from danger. He is basically saying that if there is a potential coup, he won't let it happen. Is that correct? Yes, that's that's uh, certainly strong signaling on his part. And to pick up on what we were just talking about, he, Betz, Leidener, Larka, and the socialist leader, August Rey, were the four candidates for the presidency, who were the formally registered candidates. And it seems to me one of the big mysteries is how um, Betz managed to convince Leidener to become his partner in crime, so to speak, uh, to become his partner in uh, suppressing the veterans. And part of that answer lies with what we've just been talking about, that Leidener had actually been uh, canvassed by, by Cirque to become potentially there, that the veterans candidate for the presidency and he had, had been snubbed in in that role. Um, so how Betts managed to uh, convince Leidener to be by his side with Leidener, in my view, could have uh, could have won the election uh, himself uh, as the veterans candidate or not. Okay, then we get to February 27th. Pats outlawed military personnel from being members of organizations with political goals. Mass resignations in the veterans leagues ensue. Do you think that the drive for signatures and its success for Larka scared Pats and Leidner into action? Or was the coup likely to have happened anyway? Well, um, that's, uh, that's also a very interesting question as to uh, uh, what time Betts started formulating his plans. He, of course, framed it uh, himself and, and most of the, the literature that was published at the, sub subsequently sort of suggests that he was kind of reacting to information that he had gotten that the veterans had you know, malicious intent and plans afoot. Um, but of, of course, the veterans didn't have any plans to take over by by force, they hope to win at the ballot box. So in other words, I think uh, Betts himself was afraid of losing, uh, and thus he acted preemptively and managed to get uh, somehow, managed to get Leidner on his side. And with Leidner on his side, the two of them, of course, were very popular figures, or respected figures. Betts as you know, the founding father of the Republic, the first prime minister, uh, the leader during the War of Independence, and Leidener, of course, had been the 
leader of the military during the War of Independence. So the two of them were a uh, formidable um, duo. Um, and, and General Leidenet, of course, in comparison to General Larka, uh, well, General Larka had been the first minister of war uh, in the first provisional government, but his sort of popularity and his prestige and his accomplishments certainly paled in comparison to, uh, to, to Leidenet's. Then we get to March 8th. The veterans warn their members what they should do in case of a putsch. I guess a putsch or a coup was on everybody's mind at the time. Then on March 12th, Constantine Patz declares a state of emergency and appoints Johann Leidener Supreme Commander. League headquarters at 46 Narva Puisti were secured by the military and Sirk was arrested. At the same time, Tompia Castle was secured and a meeting was held with ministers. Pats declared a state of emergency for six months with Leidener present. Were the socialists in on the coup? Um, well, yes and no, uh, not formally, but uh, tacitly indeed. And this is in the, comes out in the memoirs of, of Karl uh, Ust, one of the socialist leaders who uh, uh, did indeed have a bargain with Pats uh, preceding these events. Uh, where the socialists said that they would not oppose any moves against the veterans. So as we described earlier, the veterans and the socialists had been um, fighting each other for a few years already. The, most of the vicious contest went uh, between them rather than with the other the, the, uh, political parties. Uh, so the socialists were the ones who had the most uh, the most to lose, and the veterans had said if they come to power that they will ban all uh, Marxist parties, in including uh, the socialists. So in uh, us uh, us writings after after the fact, uh, he uh, he claimed that uh, he had told Betts that uh, from the socialist point of view, a temporary Betts and Leidener dictatorship would be a thousand times better than uh, allowing what he called the fascist uh, to come to power. And this is something I think that also distinguishes the authoritarian regime which Betts erects in Estonia in the 1930s from similar authoritarian regimes in, in, across Europe at the time because nowhere else do you have the socialists uh, initially supporting this uh, takeover of power. Moving along the timeline, uh, we get to March 19th. Elections were postponed till the end of the state of emergency. Arrests were made on protesters. William Tomingus distributed 10,000 protest leaflets and was sentenced to two and a half years in prison. Then on October 2nd, the Rigikogu dissolved and the period of silence began. On November 11th, Sirk escaped prison to Latvia and then Lohia, Finland, and was granted asylum. In 1935, in June, the trial of 39 leading veterans begins. The government could not charge them with forcibly changing the existing order, but instead they were charged with belonging to an association that threatened public safety and peace. Two were acquitted and the rest received six months to one year in prison. 
Then we get to July. Sirk summoned underground leaders to Finland to plan how they were going, how they can force the government to relinquish power and hold elections. At first through legal means, and then by force if necessary. And of course, legal means failed. Then, uh, then in October, at a meeting in Lohia, Finland, Sirk made the decision to topple the government by force. Holland and Lahmann were tasked with coordinating the overthrow of the regime. On December 8th, the push was planned to occur at the beginning co of Congress of the Isamalit and the Estonian Concert Hall were Pets, Leidener, Enpalu, top military police and government were to be present. On the evening before the planned coup, 14 conspirators met at a house in Kataka Avenue in Tallinn. However, rough seas prevented Sirk from attending the meeting, which dealt a severe blow to the plan as Sirk was supposed to bring the weapons and ammunition for the putsch. With the lack of manpower and weapons, the conspirators called off the putsch. After the meeting, the house, which was under surveillance, was surrounded and all inside were arrested. The Finnish radical right had helped plan and supply weapons for the planned putsch. Then in 1936, Sirk fled Finland, first to England and, and Rotterdam, and then eventually to a small village of Echternach, Luxembourg. Then in 1937, on July 31st, Sirk's body was found in the courtyard of his hotel, three meters below his open second story window. The hotel owner's wife heard a thud and went to investigate and found Sirk. The doctor reported that Sirk landed feet first, but fell over and broke his left knee and fractured his skull against the paved stones. Let's talk about this. It was ruled a suicide, but the radical right in Finland came out for his funeral and they suspected foul play. Do you have anything to say about that? <laughs> well, you could write a whole mystery uh, around that. Yes, you could. Um, it's, it's been an issue of speculation um, but there really isn't any evidence to suggest foul play. There are uh, sort of suggestions that there were um, members of the Estonian political police who had sort of visited uh, Ethernok at that time. Um, but the, the way, the, the manner of the death is kind of very awkward in the sense that uh, um, jumping from this window. Second uh, story window. Yeah, it's a bit, in the, for suicide, it's a bit, uh, it's not enough. Not well planned out, is it? And, and also for murder, it's not, uh, it's not high enough. So the, what I subscribe to is the idea that uh, Sirk indeed himself jumped out the window, fully conscious and landed rather unfortunately that he was, escaping from a real or imagined threat. Um, and because he landed on his feet and then fell forward and then uh, fell on his, uh, broke, fractured his skull. Um, so uh, the manner of, of his, uh, and, and then the sort of records that you have from, from the Luxembourg authorities don't sort of suggest uh, foul play, but there's still a mystery of why he jumped. Um, so there's sort of speculation that 
could have been visited by or was uh, concerned that that there, there were some Estonian speaking individuals who he suspected of being government agents who were surveilling him in town uh, and that he tried to make a quick exit, but this uh, ended uh, disastrously for him. Sure, it's fun to speculate, but can you please talk about what Sirk meant to the veterans? Everything, uh, because after his death, um, that was really the end for the veterans. It actually, by this time, he was pretty marginalized because, it, first of all, in 1935, with this uh, attempted uh, putsch attempt that we just described, uh, when uh, the veterans had planned to uh, surround the Estonia concert hall, and uh, take over power, which which was called off by Sirk himself, and the authorities uh, had been uh, surveilling the the plot from the beginning. That uh, they the, the authorities basically used this to completely discredit the veterans. Sort of any sort of residual support for the veterans after that had already faded. So. Um, that that's another argument I would say that uh, against the murder thesis for for Sirk is that the government first of all didn't kill any of their political opponents. This would have been the only instance. So it's kind of out of character for the regime to do so, and there didn't seem to be any particular need for it at this point. Um, by 1937, but sorry, Sirk was out in the wilderness. Um, and it, though, of course, uh, after Sirk's death in 1938 and the new constitution was introduced, Betz feels confident enough to uh, amnesty all of the veterans who uh, had been imprisoned to this point. Yep. Then in 1938, on April 24th, Patz was finally elected as the first president of the Estonian Republic. And as you said, amnesty was given to 73 veterans. Constantine. And also the communists. Oh, oh, yes, you're right. And the communists. Th those are the communists from the putsch in the 20s, right? Yeah. Okay. So Constantine Petz is probably the most well-known Estonian statesman in the 20th century. The episode is going out at a good time. Since a statue of his giant head was put on display in Tallinn on October 21st, how should he be looked at from the modern era? Was Petz a pragmatic politician looking to do what was best for Estonia or an authoritarian strongman that would have held power as long as humanly possible? Well, I think Betz was, was both, that he enjoyed power, but he of course also believed that he was doing what was best for the Estonian people. And of course, that's, that's the problem when, uh, when you imagine that uh, you're the one who has, you're the only one who has the right answers and the right policies for your country uh, and uh, you want to hang on to power because you don't believe anyone else will be able to um, carry out the proper program. Um, so in a sense, Betts sort of also acted against the veterans because he kind of believed that, well, Betts had been a, a leader of the Estonian national movement prior to the First World War. And as I said, he'd been one of the founders founding fathers of the, the Republic and long serving prime minister. And he felt that he knew best uh, what the Estonian people needed. And basically he treated Estonia as one big sort of farmstead 
he often thought of it in the sort of these agricultural metaphors that he was the master or the farmer of this territory and the whole territory being the Republic of, of Estonia. And so he was kind of like a, a gardener and, and, the, and the veterans were sort of the weeds that needed to be uh, taken out so there would be healthy growth. And in fact, he uses uh, also this sort of medical metaphors of uh, that the, the people are, are sick or ill in a, in, a, in a psychological sense, that they got all caught up in this far-right agitation. And with Petz's coup, that things would settle down, people's nerves would calm down, uh, and that Betz would heal the nation. Um, but this took time. In his view, that this meant extending the state of emergency every six months. But he always sort of left hope that, well, at some point, uh, normal we can have a return to normalcy, which I think was a very clever, uh, clever approach on on Betz's part, because there always was this hope that, well, things are getting better, and maybe the state of emergency will be lifted, and we'll go back to uh, normal again. It wasn't ever that this is like the thousand year Reich, as in the case of, of, uh, of Hitler. Looking back at this era in Estonian politics in the 1930s, it starts to resemble a lot of what is going on in the world today. Strong right-wing politicians feel the need to save their country from those that would do it harm, even if it means potentially taking over the country through autocratic means. Do you see similarities in the world to the 1930s Estonia, or was this truly a unique time? Well, unfortunately, uh, there are uh, similarities. If we'd be having this discussion 10 years ago, we could say that all oh, this is sort of a unique historical period, but we're seeing this indeed in uh, all across the world. Um, perhaps the most close resemblance would be with uh, Viktor Orban in, in Hungary, uh, a man who sort of has sort of being democratically elected and has served as prime minister also previously, who uh, is consolidating his power, um, has taken control over the media um, and charting sort of his own path towards what he calls illiberal uh, democracy. So I think that would be the closest uh, contemporary uh, analogy. Okay, well, Professor Kaseka, Thank you very much for coming on to the show. Uh, it's, I, I never expected to have such a great guest as my first guest, but uh, thank you very much. And uh, maybe, next, maybe we can do this again sometime. Yes, I would be happy to. Thanks for having me. All right, well, nagamisini. Nagamist. I hope you all enjoyed the new format. It makes a big difference in the quality of the content when we are able to have experts such as Professor Kasakamp on board to help elaborate on the history of Estonia. While it is a rather small country, Estonian history is vast, and I look forward to working with Estonian historians on subjects that fascinate them. In-depth history is not an easy subject to find in books printed in English. So I think this is a fun task that we have, which is to popularize and share this history. Thank you again to Professor Kasekamp for sharing his knowledge. To other Estonian historians, I hope one day you will share some of your time with the podcast.
I am now on the hunt for a new subject and guest. Therefore, I don't have a release date for the next episode. Please subscribe to the podcast so that you will see when the next episode is released. If you would like to reach out to me, my email is sparsleyw at gmail.com. So, until next time, Nagamisini. This podcast was brought to you by Kaikame's Brand Cigarettes. For whose faith in our victory is lacking, straight away we'll send him packing. Kaikamace leads the race, victorious in every case. Kaikamace brand cigarettes. <coughs>